0: Welcome back to the South Harbor Church podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. As we come near the end of our long study of the book of Genesis, Hannah Stevens brings us a message where we look at a problematic blessing from Jacob, and she presents us with a practice to carry forward. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Hannah.
1: Good morning. My name is Hannah Stevens, and I work at Western Theological Seminary, and I go to church here with my husband and three rowdy children. And sometimes you let me preach, which is awesome. Um, It's good to be here with you again. Today, we are getting towards the end of a series that we've been in for about 10 months on Genesis, starting way back in January, Um, and we're starting to wrap up that series. But just a quick, brief recap of where we've been. We started in Genesis 1 in January. In the beginning, there was God, and there was chaos. And God put boundaries around the chaos and made everything that we see. And God made people. And in a very countercultural way to the ancient world, God did not make people to be slaves of God, but to rule with God, to be co-creators alongside God. And God put boundaries around this relationship as well and blessed the people that God had made And that was great for two chapters. But then humanity was not sure that they wanted to live within the boundaries that God had set. And as a result of their choices, people got hurt. And death was brought into the world. And that grew as people continued to say, I want to live the way I want to live. Maybe not as God as God, but as me in charge within the kingdom I want to build. And that kept happening and that snowballed and that grew and there was more death and there was more destruction and then there was the flood because every inclination of the human heart was evil. And then God made a covenant with the whole world. I will not flood the world again. And from there, God chose one family and said, I am going to bless this family and I'm going to bless the world through this family. And that was the family of Abraham. And Abraham and Sarah, they entered this relationship with God and God set boundaries around the relationship and blessed the family. And they struggled along (laughs) trying to be in this relationship with God and God was faithful to them. And throughout their family, there was um, tension, there was doubts, there was sibling rivalry, rivalry, a lot of it. And we had Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and this blessing and this promise and this covenant of God kept being passed down. And then Jacob had a lot of kids, um, but he had favorites. His, um, his favorites were from his favorite wife, Rachel, his favorites were Joseph and Benjamin. And the oldest of those two, he bestowed kind of extra favor on, which made the brothers, the rest of all these brothers, jealous, and so they attacked Joseph, they took away his coat, the gift that had been given to him from his father, and they put him in a well, and eventually he gets sold down as a slave to Egypt. And they bring the coat to the father, dipped in blood, and let him assume that his son is dead. Meanwhile, Joseph goes down to Egypt. Joseph has ups and downs. He's a slave. He gets honor, but then he gets falsely accused, and then he gets put in prison, and then he has some positive things, but he stays there for a while. But eventually, he gets taken out, and he becomes second to Pharaoh in Egypt and has all this power. And then he has this moment where those brothers who beat him up, who took his coat, who let him be sold down to Egypt, they come to him because there's a famine in the land and he's the one that has the food and they bow down before him and they don't recognize him. And for a little bit, we're not sure what Joseph is going to do with this you know, kind of beautiful moment where he's like, I, you don't know who I am. <laughs> and I have a lot of history with you. But then he learns that his father thinks that he's been dead all these years. And he sees his brother Judah plead for the life of his brother Benjamin, and he breaks. And there's reconciliation. And that catches us up to where we are today. We're going to look at a couple chapters today. We're going to take a little bit of a broad view in Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis 48, 49, and 50. And 50 is the end of the book because there's some broad themes that are happening in these texts and they're connected to each other. They deal with different elements, but all three of these texts, all three of these chapters are concerned with the death of Jacob, otherwise known as Israel. That's the main theme that connects these, two, these three chapters together. And with the death of Jacob... There's a question behind these texts. They're all kind of asking, what's going to happen next? What will happen once Jacob dies? Because the blessing has been passed down, and now we have all these brothers, and they're all in Egypt. They're no longer in the land of Canaan. Um, What will happen now? What's going to happen to the blessing? What's going to happen to the promise? And they're all kind of wrestling with this in different ways. So starting in 48, 48 is where we looked more closely at this last week. We're not going to go in a total deep dive here. But 48, broadly, is um, Jacob looking to his death. And so he uh, has Joseph come to him, and he meets his sons, and he takes them as his own. He says, these two sons born to you will be like my sons, and they will take a portion of the blessing. So in this way, Joseph gets kind of this double share of the blessing. His sons are put into each having a share of the blessing. And we talked in last week about how Jacob kind of continues the trend of the younger um, ruling over the older here. But I think what's really important in this text is how Jacob passes on this blessing. Can we get to you the text? Let's read it. Genesis 48, starting in 3. So Jacob has called Joseph, and he's there to bless the boys. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you of a company of peoples and will give you this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has led me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and in them let my name be perfect. Perpetuated In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Then Israel said to Joseph, "...behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope, which I took from the hand of the Amorites, with my sword and with my bow." Any guess what that land is? We've talked about it a little bit throughout this series. There's a piece of land that's pretty significant to the people of Israel, and it keeps coming up. You want to take a guess? Jerusalem's a good guess, but more specifically, Shechem. Does that sound familiar to you? It's come up a few times in this text. Shechem is where Joseph is put in the well, where his brothers attack him. It's where he leaves from. And looking ahead, Shechem is where Joshua is going to lead the Israelites when they come out of Egypt. And he will say to them, choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's an important moment. It's it's an important land. It's a place that reminds the people of Israel of the promise, of the blessing, of where they belong, of what God is giving to them. So here in this passing on of the blessing, Jacob is concerned with binding this new generation to the promise and to the land. Though they are in Egypt, Jacob wants to remind them of the story of the line that they come from. He tells them about his encounter with God. He reminds them of their their, uh, grandfather and great-grandfather's encounter with God. He reminds them who they are and wants them to know, Egypt is not your home. You are going to go back to this land. You are part of this promise. You are part of this blessing. Jacob wants this to continue. This is Jacob's great hope as he looks to his death. They're here in Egypt, but I want you to remember this is not your home. And then 49. I'm not going to lie, 49 is a weird chapter. Um, 49 has all these kind of like blessing sort of prediction things about the 12 tribes. And some of it is like hopeful and some of it is kind of... Not so great. Like, you don't want to hear your dad predict these things for you. Um, It has things like uh, this one. (laughs) Genesis 49. Then Jacob called. So this is the beginning. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Assemble and hear, O sons of Jacob, and hearken to Israel your father. Reuben... You are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in pride and preeminent in power. Unstable as water. How would you like to be called unstable as water by your father? You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Oh, my soul, come not into their counsel. Oh, my spirit, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they slay men, and in their wantonness they hamstring oxen. It's a little bit odd, you know? It's got this like, here's kind of this prediction about who you are. Here's what's going to happen. Then he says Judah. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who, dare, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And then there's this kind of odd phrase that he ends on. <laughs> Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at eve- evening, Dividing the spoil. So it's a little bit of an odd text. And at the end of this, Jacob gathers up to himself and dies. After he kind of puts these predictions, blessings on his sons. But I think one of the things that we're supposed to see here, that the narrator wants us to see, is that there's a long view here. Right now, it's just 12 men... But they're going to be tribes. They're going to have a long history. And the things that they do now, though they seem maybe insignificant, will have a, a long view of, in history. The things they do now will have an impact on the generations to come. It's almost like we're, we're supposed to see that Even the things that seem kind of small about whether or not today we're going to live within the boundaries that's set for us, whether these sons are going to live within the promise, live within the blessing, that it's going to matter in the long run. When I was a high school pastor, um, I loved being a high school pastor. I think that's probably one of the best places to be in ministry. Because (laughs) the thing about ministry with adults, which I also love, is that we adults are a little set in our ways. Um, We get to a point in our lives where like, this is who we are, this is what we think, and for us to change, it takes a long time. Formation, once we're a little bit set, is like slow process, it's a long journey. High schoolers, they'll change tomorrow. You'll have a conversation with them and their whole trajectory of their life just shifts, right? And it's really rewarding because you can see that if you can interact with a 14-year-old and help them to love themselves a little bit more and love the people around them a little bit more and trust God's promises in their lives a little bit more, that little shift in trajectory in their lives, which may just be slight today, over the course of their life is going to have a huge impact. And I think that's a little bit of what we're looking at here A little bit of what Jacob is pointing to, that the things you do today that maybe seem slight over the course of history will have a huge impact on the people to come, on the world to come. It's going to have a huge impact. Both ways, if you decide you're going to live outside of the boundaries of the blessing, that you're going to live for your own kingdom and your own desires, that's going to shift your trajectory and over time it's going to have a long impact in the world. Like Jacob wants them to see the long game. Remember, it's not just about you. There's generations to come that will be shaped by what you do today. And then he dies. And in 50, we encounter how the sons are going to interact with his death. So, Genesis 50, starting in one, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him. And kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for so many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh saying, "'My father made me swear,' saying, "'I'm about to die in my tomb which I hewed out for myself "'in the land of Canaan. "'There shall you bury me. "'Now therefore let me go up, I pray you, "'and bury my father. "'Then I will return.' "'And Pharaoh answered, "'Go up and bury your father as he made you swear.' "'So Joseph went up to bury his father, "'and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, "'the elders of his household, "'and all the elders of the land of Egypt.' as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flock, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor at Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days." After this, there's gonna be this interaction between Joseph and his brothers. Because his brothers at this point are also asking, what's gonna happen when Jacob dies? Is Joseph still going to say he forgives us? Or is he just kind of pretending until dad's out of the picture to get his revenge? And so they kind of have this scheme of like sending a message to Joseph to say, uh, this, you know, as Joseph's grieving, "From your deceased father, please forgive your brothers." And Joseph gets angry. He sees what's happening here. But he does. He actually responds with this incredibly gracious um, like words that essentially let his brothers off the hook. He says to them, "You aren't the ones that sent me to Egypt. It was in God's plan." You intended harm for me, but God meant it for good. And you could focus this entire sermon on this moment. This is incredibly powerful, that Joseph chooses to let go of whatever hurt was caused to him. And this is not insignificant. It it changed the course of his whole life. He could be bitter. He lost so much, but he doesn't. He doesn't focus on this. And you could. You could focus the whole sermon on this. Actually, when I first wrote this, it was focused on this. (laughs) But then I realized there's something bigger happening here. Because I wondered, what is it that allows Joseph to let his brothers off the hook in this moment? Why does he do it? He doesn't have to. There's not really a long tradition here of forgiveness spoken in scripture. We don't have that yet. But it's in the way he does it. He's able to see the bigger picture. He's able to see God at work in these experiences, and that's what allows him to say, you know what, it's okay. It's actually what God intended. It's how God was going to bring salvation to us. I think that's beautiful. This is going back to Genesis. Can we trust that what God has for us is good? Are we willing to live within the boundaries that God has set? Are we willing to say, I trust you, God, whatever happens? And this is a moment of trust with Joseph. But there is also tension here. Because Joseph is fully an Israelite and... He's a little bit Egyptian. Notice what he does right when his father dies. He embalms, has his father's body embalmed, and he follows the Egyptian practice of mourning. Now, what is Egyptian embalming about? What are, what's this, these rituals about? They're very much tied to how they understood the afterlife, how they understood power structures, how they understood who was in charge, who was God and he does do what his father asked he does get permission from Pharaoh to take the body up out into the land of Canaan he the text tells us he the brothers followed what their father asked and they lived in a tension between this promised future and this current reality the kingdom that they're currently in see there's a tension here genesis ends with this hoped for outcome for the people of Israel. It, it's pointing to Exodus. It ends with Joseph saying, hey, when God pulls us out of this of Egypt, take my bones with you. It's, it's a pointing towards, we're not going to be here forever. And also, the people are still being deeply formed by the kingdom they are in, in Egypt. And we have this tension between the two. Which one, which kingdom are they ultimately going to serve? Are they going to follow the promise? Or are they going to get really comfortable where they are? And I think this is significant because it is the same tension that you and I experience. I think I skipped this quote, but I want to read this to you really quick. This is... um, from Walter Brueggemann, (laughs) talking about this text and talking about what Jacob is hoping for for his descendants. For Jacob, the capacity to hope has made him persistently a man of conflict. Remember, he wrestles with God and with humanity. That is the nature of this promise. He wishes nothing other than this for his heirs. He knows that when they believe the promise... They will be in conflict with present reality, even as they are blessed with the hope. Isn't this us? For many of us here, we have been baptized into the family of God, into God's kingdom. And yet, we are still deeply formed by the kingdoms of this world every day. And we need to choose between them. We need to choose, are we living in and for God's kingdom in this world, or are we living for whatever kingdom we might build, or joining what other kingdom other humans might build? And if you don't choose, the default is the kingdoms of this world. If you don't intentionally choose to live in and for God's kingdom, you will be swept up into the kingdoms of this world. They are that powerful. They are forming you constantly. So the obvious question is how. How do you choose to live intentionally in God's kingdom while we're still encountering the kingdoms of this world all the time? How do you do that? I suggest to you that it has to do with one of the most valuable commodities that you have. It's your attention. And I will tell you that there are so many people that want your attention. If you have kids, you understand this already. (laughs) But beyond that, there are people whose whole job it is is to grab your attention and hold it for as long as they can. And if you are not intentional with your attention, it will be spent away on things you can't even remember. There are so many people who want to tell you how to spend your attention. In Waiting for God, Simone Wheels writes this about attention. He's writing about prayer, but he says this, Prayer consists of attention. Prayer is one of the ways that we turn our attention to God and God's kingdom. It's one of the ways that we shift and intentionally say, I'm not going to give my attention away to whatever will take it from me. I'm going to choose where I'm going to put my attention. So I want to recommend a practice to you. But before I recommend the practice to you, um, I want to try and head off any arguments that you might have about this practice. (laughs) Because I get it. It's going to sound a little bit, maybe to some of you, um, legalistic. It may sound a little bit like too ritualistic. Um, it's a practice of prayer. It's a practice of praying the same prayer at a certain time of day. So, before you push back on this, because I've had my own pushback on this, um, I've somewhat, I met someone recently that really changed my mind or shifted my thinking about this. His name is Wes Granberg Michelson. He's written some books, he's done some stuff. He's lived his life in and for the kingdom of God. And one of the things that significantly shaped him is in his 20s, he was living in Washington, D.C., and he was attending a church um, that had a, a lot of um, requirements to be a member of the church. And they were all about spiritual practices. It was You had to sign on and say, I'm gonna do these regular rhythms in my life of uh, fasting and prayer and retreat. And he was really nervous about this. And so he talked with someone from the church, and this is the response he got when he said, this seems really legalistic and too ritualized, and I don't, I'm not sure about that. But he talked to someone from the church, and this is the response he got. Doesn't everything great that you want to do require practice and discipline? You wouldn't just pick up a violin and expect to be able to play it perfectly. Isn't everything that we care about in our lives, everything that we want to do, doesn't it require practice? Why wouldn't you give practice to living into the kingdom of God? Even in our relationships, we have to learn. We have to learn how to be in relationship with one another, with our friends, with our spouses, with our kids, with our parents. It's something we practice and we don't always get right. Can we give some of our practice, some of our attention to God's kingdom and what God is doing in this world? All right, that's my bit. (laughs) Let me introduce you to this prayer if you haven't encountered it yet. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you have a phone, get it out and take a picture of this slide, This is a prayer to be prayed in the morning, and I encourage you to pray it tomorrow morning. God of every time and place, apart from you, our life is brief and meaningless. In you, we experience endless abundance. Reveal to us all we can comprehend of our place in your design for eternity. Help us to receive each new day as a gift and to use your gift wisely and well, so that we may live in joy and bring glory to Christ your Son, our Lord. Amen. Uh, there's a colleague at the seminary um, who teaches Old Testament and really loves the Psalms, and she reads a psalm every morning, and she says, it's how I tune my heart to the kingdom of God each day. It's how I tune myself focus her attention on what God might be up to in the world. And then I recommend this prayer for the evening. This is going to be on two slides, so if you got your phones, you're going to need two pictures. O God, our creator, by whose mercy and might the world turns safely into darkness and returns again to light, we give into your hands our unfinished tasks, our unsolved problems, and our unfulfilled hopes, knowing that only those things which you bless will prosper. To your great love and protection we commit each other and all for whom we have prayed, knowing that you alone are our sure defender, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. If you want bonus points, I recommend that you learn these words by heart. One of my favorite professors at the seminary, who's no longer there, Tom Bogart, Um, he spent a lot of time memorizing and what he would call internalizing scripture, bringing it into himself. And as he did this practice over his lifetime, he realized that those words from scripture would come to him at the most interesting and perfect moments. And he realized that the Holy Spirit used those words that he had internalized to speak to him. It became a dialogue for him with God throughout his day. And he had this beautiful imagery for it. He said, it's like when you take scripture and bring it into yourself. It becomes embers. So that when the Holy Spirit blows through you, it has something to ignite into flame." So along with these prayers, I'd recommend that you learn scripture by heart, particularly the Psalms. I have one more thing for you. Last week on my way to church, um, I was driving along with my family, and my middle son is listening to the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, He's listening to it on Audible. I love this series. It's a great series. I haven't heard it in a very long time. I haven't read it in a long time. But I'm sitting in the car, and I'm talking to my husband and my son, Wolfgang. It's got the iPad and is playing the story, The Magician's Nephew. And all of a sudden, I tune into the story, and I hear this part that I'm sure I've read many times, but I totally forgot about. And it just grips me. If you don't know the story, it's about um, Narnia and the world of, like, It's our world, (laughs) but it's told with fanciful creatures, and there's this lion, Aslan, that's the Christ figure, and there's these humans that get into the world and interact with the world and interact with Aslan. And in this story, Narnia has just been created, and there's been all these adventures, and there's this character, Uncle Andrew, who's kind of a not nice guy. And he's manipulated his nephew and his nephew's friend, Polly, and gotten them to experiment with these magical things because he's not willing to do it himself. But he ends up getting into Narnia and just being dumbfounded. He can't even speak because there's animals that are talking, and he's terrified. And... The animals don't know what to do with him either. They think he's a tree, so they try to plant him, and then they realize that he's alive, and they put him in a cage, and they try to feed him, but they don't know what he eats, so they throw like thistles at him and like a beehive. <laughs> it's very like humorous. But it kind of comes to the end of the story, and uh, Aslan is kind of assigning rules to everybody and saying, "Here's what's going to happen." And They come to Uncle Andrew, who's kind of been through this whole ordeal with the animals. And Polly says, please, Aslan, said Polly, could you say something to unfrighten him? She realizes he's terrified. Aslan, can you help him? But Aslan, he responds in this way. I cannot tell that to this old sinner, (laughs) and I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. Oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourself against all that might do you good but I will give him the only gift he still is able to receive. He bowed his great head, rather sadly, and breathed into the magician's terrified face. Sleep, he said. Sleep and be separated for some few hours from all the torments you have desired for yourself. Uncle Andrew immediately rolled over with closed eyes and began breathing peacefully. I heard this last week on the way to church. And this question came into my head. Are we asleep? I just wondered, have we gotten swept up so much into the world that we've made ourselves unable to hear God's voice? Have we not given our attention to God's kingdom and the things of God's kingdom? Is the only gift we've been able to receive anymore sleep? Sleep? If so, I invite you to rouse yourself. I invite you to turn your attention towards God and the things of God's kingdom because it is in our world. It is breaking into our world. The kingdoms of this world are not all there is. I invite you to turn your attention and tune your heart to God and God's kingdom each day this week. Please pray with me. Father God, you are a good, good father. And you love us deeply. And you want to give us so many good gifts. You want us to be able to see your kingdom in this world. I pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts and turn our attention to you. In Jesus' name.
0: As always, we hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. On Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 9 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.